Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 17. And I do hope that you are enjoying the study of Revelation. Uh, This has been one of the highlights of the different books that we've studied in the Bible. And I actually began this study because there were so many people that asked me to do this. Uh, Most of you had never been through... I don't know, has anybody ever been through a complete study of Revelation verse by verse? A few of you? Well, good. Uh, Most people haven't, and... Uh, Revelation seems to be confusing and mystifying to most people because preachers usually just lightly touch on it. They brush over it as they go by. And so we just don't have too many people that really understand what's taking place here in this book. But we can look at history and we can look at the growth of apostasy within Christianity. We can look at the scientific and technological advances that are taking place in the world and uh, we see the rise of a global economy, the, um, a world that was once culturally and politically divided by great distances has now been brought very closely together so that you can actually reach out and touch someone on the other side of the world. And in fact, there was a, I think it was a telephone campaign or ad campaign some years ago that said, reach out and touch someone. And that's actually come true because the world is a much smaller place than it was before. Everyone is mobile more than they ever were before so that your neighborhood, your city, your state, even your country may not be your single domain. And so we have people moving all over the place and the world is a very different time than it has been in any other time in history. And so we can look at the book of Revelation and we can easily see much better than they did even a century ago how things like this can actually take place. But there is still another very important aspect that we have to remember. And that is, we are teaching the Word of God. And as such, it's not open to just everybody. The Holy Spirit has to move in a person's heart to really make them understand what we're talking about here. And so, if a person hasn't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they aren't alarmed by the things that we're speaking of. And so you don't find people rushing out into the streets and saying, oh, the world is ending, the world is ending because Pastor Smith has been teaching in the book of Revelation. They're not going to do that. They aren't concerned about it at all. And actually, they become part of the problem because they become people that help to fulfill the very things that we're talking about here. So we look into the book of Revelation and the things that we've been studying, and we find that there are many religious practices that are warned against in these chapters. Uh, There is an apostasy that's going on right now, even as we speak. But yet there's coming a time when the apostasy will be so deep and people's eyes will be so blinded that a one-world religion and a one-world government will actually come into being. And at that time, people will have unprecedented freedom, freedom they didn't have before. And you may be somewhat surprised if you haven't been with us what their freedom is. Their freedom is to sin almost without license. And their freedom is to serve the Antichrist, who is the archenemy of God. Well, the messages over the past month have been about the Antichrist's rise to power. He's the greatest and the last of the world's leaders. And his kingdom gains momentum. It reaches its zenith in a seven-year period at the end of the world before Christ comes at least, not before the consummation of all the ages, but before uh, Christ comes in the second phase of his coming. And this period of the tribulation is when he gains this, this power, and his earliest supporters, interestingly enough, are religious people. 
and they're gathered from all the different religions of the world. But that kind of a gathering of different religious systems wouldn't really have much of an impact on people if it doesn't have some organization. Well, the organization is already in place, and the organization has been in place for quite some time. And so what we're speaking of here is the Roman Catholic Church. It contains all of the organizational structure that's needed to bring these religions together. And the Roman Catholic Church has a history of doing the very things that we're talking about here in the book of Revelation and often succeeding at doing them very successfully. And so that's what we've been discussing here. How does that all figure into the end times? Well, the religion of the the practices, the dogmas, the different doctrines that you have in Roman Catholicism actually have can be traced back many of them to the earliest civilization of the world one of the earliest which was the kingdom of Babylon and this was right after the flood when Nimrod began that great tower called the tower of Babel and that was man's first attempt to change to a idolatrous system of worship actually worshiping gods of heaven, sun, moon, stars, all these different things, all these different kind of inventions. And so we're talking about how the Roman church grew out of that. And we're gonna, I'm going to discuss some of that in, in just a moment and, and go back over some previous points that we talked about. Then I want to give you some new, maybe not new to some of you, but it's some really horrific information. And it comes from the people who follow a person who calls himself the vicar of Christ. I mean, actually says that he is Christ's representative on earth. Now, if you look in Revelation 17, our text verses are 1 through 6. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters." with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication." And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to speak to your people tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you'd help in this message this evening. I do want to pray also, Lord, for Joey and Margaret Newton, who are, are now in Fresno, and Joey's preaching tonight. Would you bless their Lord, and, and as the church uh, considers hiring him to teach in their school, I just pray, Lord, that your, your will would be done. They would seek your face, and we just thank you, Lord, that you're a God who hears and answers prayer. So we ask for your blessing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number five we've used as the text verse, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. As I mentioned just a moment ago, Babylon is the name of the first attempt by man, a a world, well, not a worldwide attempt, I guess you wouldn't put it that way, but a, 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 a group of people, a nation of people that were wholly dedicated to heathen idolatrous worship. 
Now, thousands of years have passed since that original kingdom and the worship that they set up, but that was actually a foundation for what came later during the Roman Empire. And so we talked about in the very first message the preparation of the Roman church. This worship of idols that began with Nimrod shortly after the flood and all this invention of mythological gods, of cult worship that centered in this uh, miraculous, what they think, mother-son cult relationship, that's really the underlying dogma for what you find in Roman Catholicism today. All of the essential elements are there, and the only difference is a, a change in names for their gods to the familiar names of Christianity. Secondly, we talked about the power of the Roman church. Uh, The Roman church was founded during the reign of Emperor Constantine in the 4th century. The Roman Empire was still officially pagan at that time. But Constantine saw the opportunity to further unite his kingdom. And so what he did was to uh, decide to convert to an apostate form of Christianity. And so there was a gathering of... of, um, apostate Christian churches, schismatic churches that joined with Constantine and they formed the official religion of the empire which we know today as Roman Catholicism. Now the horrible problem in that is that true Christianity would have never gone along with such a proposal. Christ taught against such things. The apostles didn't believe in such things. That was forbidden by Christ. And so these weren't true churches that came together but these were schismatic churches And they became the uh, dominant religion of the empire. And so to make the transition smooth and easy for all that were concerned, the pagans were told that their gods had just received different names. And so they were willing to convert to Christianity. And so their mythological gods became the saints. Uh, The pagans said, uh, I mean, the uh, people told them that their idols had been given all these new names. And so thus, Venus became Mary and Cupid became her son, Jesus. And so the relationship between the two is preserved today in the worship of Mary, known by that old Babylonian name, the same one that was given by the Babylonians hundreds, even thousands of years ago. They call Mary the Queen of Heaven. Now thirdly, we talked about the prosperity of the Roman church. And this passage that we just read also speaks of the prosperity of Roman Catholicism. It is the richest religion in the world. And the way that it gained its wealth, we pointed out, by, was, was by selling the forgiveness of sin. And also that they, would gain, they gained wealth by actually reaching beyond the grave to teach the doctrine of purgatory so that collections were made for the living for the benefit of the dead. So a poor Roman Catholic can't get out from under the system even if he dies and rots in the grave. He's still in their system. Fourth, we talked about the perversions of the Roman church. Just about every Bible doctrine that you can think of has been perverted by Roman Catholicism. Even when it comes to things like the doctrine of the Trinity, and people think, well, Roman Catholics are so orthodox because at least they do believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, don't believe that because they actually have a fourth person in their Godhead, and that fourth person is Mary. And according to their own statement, she's every bit as much essential for your salvation, or I should say their salvation in that Roman system, every bit as much essential as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then when we speak, or when they speak, of Christ's sacrifice as an atonement for sin, don't believe them because they don't actually believe that. 
They don't believe that Christ did anything for anybody, really, because the way that you're saved is by your allegiance to the Roman system, by you uh, honoring the Pope and giving him your, your uh, allegiance, and ultimately everything that you do to get to heaven depends upon you and your support of Roman Catholicism. The Bible really doesn't matter to them because the Bible is trumped by their traditions. And that's the way it's always been in Roman Catholicism. Salvation, they say, is in the church. They don't claim that it's specifically in Christ. Salvation is in the church. And all outside the church are damned. And so John has the system pegged pretty well. It spawned Mystery Babylon the Great, and, and Rome is the chief daughter. She's the matron of honor that rules all of the rest of the harlot daughters. Now, we're going to move on from that, and I want to look at another area that identifies the Roman church with this great whore. And what could be more closely connected with Catholicism than verse number 6? And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Roman Catholicism is a bloodthirsty religion. Number five, we're going to talk about the persecutions of the Roman church. Now, tonight we're going to look at some things that would actually make Hitler pale by comparison. Uh, Hitler had only about a decade to do his worst. He tortured and killed people. But over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church has actually perfected the art. They're very good at this. And Hitler's like an untrained schoolboy next to the, the uh, or compared to the popes of Rome. Now, I want you to notice first... In this text, in verse number 6, or what we're speaking of specifically tonight, is the reaction of John. The last part of that verse says, And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now that seems a little bit surprising to us as we read it in our King James Version. And we need to remember that in 1611, the words uh, took on a little bit different meaning from that we have today. And so, admiration there does not mean that John loved what he saw. It doesn't mean that he was enamored with what he saw. But the word there actually means astonishment. He marveled at this. And I think that we could use another word, if you like big words. He wondered with great incredulity. What he saw was actually in, so incredible that he couldn't hardly believe it. Here is John to the point of disbelief. And why is he so astonished at what he sees? I mean, hadn't John seen persecution before? Wasn't he used to that? Well, yes, he was. You remember that when we were speaking in the beginning of the book of Revelation, we talked about the persecution that John went through. The revelation was given to him while he was on the Isle of Patmos. And there are many people believe that the story behind that, the reason he was exiled there, was because the Roman government had tried to kill him. They had boiled him in oil. But he survived that. And so in their thinking, in their beliefs in their mystical gods, uh, their, their heathen mythological gods, they thought that somehow the gods must have smiled upon John. And so they weren't going to chance trying to kill him again. So they just exiled him to the island of Patmos, and there he was banished and to live on that rocky, barren island. Now, many believe then that General John, this one who is affectionately known in the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved, was actually a disfigured person, that he was painfully injured. He was a very ugly person. And so John had experienced persecution. He'd seen it in the Roman Empire. Nero, as we've discussed before, literally burned Christians, set them on fire at night just so he could light his gardens. 
The emperor Domitian, who was emperor at the time that the end of John's life, had his entire family killed because they were suspected of being Christians. So John's amazement here is not at the bloodshed. It's not the persecution that he sees. John had already been taught that that would come. Jesus told the disciples that they would be persecuted. He said, they're going to kill you. And he also said, he said, they'll do it to me. And if they do it to me, don't think that they're not going to do it to you. So John was aware of this. He knew that this was happening. So he's not amazed by that. It's not persecutions. It's not blood. It's not all of that that amazed John. His amazement is at the perpetrators. Because these are people that claimed Christ. And what they're doing is they're killing in the name of Christ. Never before had he seen anything like that. Now the Romans, of course, they were a threat. But nobody ever sat with a mitre on his head, with a staff in his hand, with vestments that picture Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then stretched out that scepter approvingly for the slaughter of believers. And so that was incredulous to John. He knew Christ. He knew that Christ never taught such a thing. The master said, don't you do that. You don't even do that to your worst enemy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He said, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Christ commands us to treat our enemies that way. So how could anybody ever construe that, that believers should be treated that way? Well, of course, Rome doesn't call them believers. They call them heretics. They should be treated this way. These are people that don't accept the perversions of the wicked system. And so according to them, they deserve to die. And so Roman Catholicism, as the scripture says here, is drunken with the blood of the martyrs. And that's an interesting word, drunken, because it actually has a thought or means continuously drunk. This is not a mistake that accidentally happened. This is something purposeful. It goes on continuously. And that's why John is so astonished. So what he sees here are not the professedly pagans of the Roman Empire. What he has here are people that stand in the name of Christ. These are priests. These are bishops. These are cardinals. These are the Pope. And he claims the name of Christ. But we know that it's nothing but apostate Christianity. It's worst. And best, maybe at its best, depending on how you view it, because if you think of their adeptness at torturing and killing and all kinds of invented waves, they are really at their best when they do this. Now notice again that this is mystery Babylon. And what we've tried to do is tie all of this to that ancient Babylonian system throughout our study. And the Catholic Church is not different from Babylon in this respect either. They do the very same things and have done. So did Babylon ever do such a thing as this? Did they ever persecute the people of God? Well, secondly, we're going to look at the correlation to Babylon. And I want to call your attention to one of the most famous incidents in the Bible concerning the persecution of God's people by Babylonians. And the scripture that we're going to read, you need to remember, are the Babylonians who came from this long line of pagans, a long line of people that were cruel, and they came from the original kingdom of Nimrod. Now let's go over to Daniel chapter 3, and this will be representative of similar persecutions. And I'm going to relate to you the beginning of the story, because this is a, a long reading, and I don't have time to read it all tonight. But it's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were three faithful servants of God, of Jehovah God, and they'd been taken captive by the Babylonians. And these Hebrew, three Hebrew young men were very devout worshipers, But King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, was from this long line of worshipers of the mother-child cult, and he was determined that he would be worshipped as God. And so he built an image of himself. 
And he demanded that the entire kingdom should bow and worship that image. And those that refused had a special death that was prepared for them. They would be thrown in a burning, fiery furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the king. In fact, they told the king that God would deliver them. And if God chose not to deliver them from his fiery furnace or from the hand of the king, they said, King, we're not going to bow down to you anyway. They said, we're not bound before your image. Now let's pick this up as they refused to bow. Verse number 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should, be, they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, uh, their hosen, and their hats, and the other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now that is typical Babylonian fare. They were killers, and they did this in the name of their gods. Now, fiery furnace, that is really a horrible way to die. But you catalog that information for a moment because that's one of the favorite methods of the Pope and his cohorts. Now, what we're speaking of here, what the story we've just read, is Babylon about 600 B.C. Well, the question would be, does Babylon change? Well, we fast forward to the tribulation, and of course, this is sometime in the future. 2,600 years have gone by already, and whatever time the Lord decides to delay is coming, that time will pass. But I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 13 right now. And while you do, I'm going to read to you from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So you just listen while you're turning there. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now the man of sin it's speaking of is the Antichrist, who just like Nebuchadnezzar, rules in a kingdom called Babylon, and he claims to be God. Now, Revelation 13, verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. Now let me stop there just a moment. The second beast that John sees is the false prophet. And this is a person who preaches the Antichrist. He does all these miracles in the sight of the people, and he convinces people to follow the Antichrist. And now he's going to convince them that they need to bow down or command them to bow and worship the image of the Antichrist. Verse 14, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. 
And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now there we see that Babylon is going to take up right where it left off. As I said, 2,600 years of history have now gone by. This is sometime in the future. But here we see image worship, and we see vengeance, and we see death on anybody who won't comply. Now the question then is, are we looking at a gap in this 2,600 years? Is this a 2,600-year gap in the religion of Babylon? Does it die? And does that religion come back in the future? Well... The physical kingdom is gone. We know that. That's been gone for these 2,600 years. But folks, the spiritual kingdom still lives on. And that spiritual kingdom is the same old bloodthirsty religion that it's always been. Now thirdly, we're going to talk about the cruelty of Rome. Now what I'm going to show you tonight is agonizing. It is really frustrating information. The Roman Catholic Church has a 1,600-year history of what John saw. Drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs. That means continuously drunken with their blood. And Rome is no different now than it ever was before. They've never fully admitted to their complicity in the death of millions of people. They have excused it, but they've never fully owned it. And I'm going to show you that in the end of the message tonight by their own statements that they haven't abandoned this. Now, they, they don't abandon it because they plan to return to it. Now, the reason that we enjoy a little bit of respite today is because God has just blessed us and allowed us that we don't have to go through these kinds of persecution. But if you wonder, why does Rome cover up the pedophile priest and shift them around to different places and they never do anything about it until they're actually called and nailed on it? Why, don't they, why didn't they do something about that? Well, the reason is it's because they're age-old character. And I'm not imagining this. This is history. You can pick it up and you can read it if you want. And I'm going to show you where you can read it in just a moment. Now, I can only give you a taste of this, but it's a terrible taste. It really is. But it's just a sampler of what's happened in 1,600 years of history. I want to talk to you now about a man by the name of John Fox. John Fox lived in the 16th century, and he wrote a book that was entitled... Fox's Book of Martyrs. And that book is not contested by historians. He, he is a person who actually lived and saw some of this taking place. And the only people who actually dispute it for the most part are Roman Catholics. But for the rest of the world, it's considered to be a classic work. Now I want to read to you a few portions of the book tonight. And this is something that I, you know, I wouldn't often, don't often do. And that's why it's going to take us a little bit longer this evening to get through some things. But I want to read to you some examples of the cruelty of Rome. This is the opening paragraph of chapter 4 of John Fox's book. Now, I think I did say this was 16th century. So he was living through much of this, or some of it, rather. And his fourth chapter is entitled, Papal Persecutions. He says, thus far, our history of persecution has been confined principally to the pagan world. We come now to a period when persecution, under the guise of Christianity, committed more enormities than ever disgraced the annals of paganism. Disregarding the maxims and the spirit of the gospel, the papal church, arming herself with the power of the sword, vexed the church of God and wasted it for several centuries, a period most appropriately termed in history the Dark Ages. The kings of the earth gave their power to the beast, 
and submitted to be trodden on by the miserable vermin that often filled the papal chair, as in the case of Henry, emperor of Germany. The storm of papal persecution first burst upon the Waldenses in France. Now from there, John Fox goes on to tell the story of Peter Waldo. Now Peter Waldo was a man who believed in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in fact, he also believed the doctrines of grace. Waldo refused to bow down to the Pope, and those who followed him, who followed Waldo, and the same refusal to bow to Rome, were vigorously persecuted. So that Fox writes, Pope Alexander III excommunicated Waldo and his adherents and commanded the bishop to exterminate them, if possible, from the face of the earth. Now those were people who basically believe what we do right here in Berean Baptist Church believe the same doctrines. Now, how did the popes attempt to exterminate people like you and me? In the year 1524, at a town in France called Meldon, one John Clark set up a bill on the church door wherein he called the pope Antichrist. For this offense, he was repeatedly whipped and then branded on the forehead. Going afterward to Mentz and Lorraine, he demolished some images for which he had his right hand and nose cut off and his arms and breast torn with pinchers. He sustained these cruelties with amazing fortitude and was even sufficiently cool to sing the 115th Psalm, which expressly forbids idolatry, after which he was thrown into the fire and burnt to ashes. Many persons of the Reformed persuasion were about this time beaten, racked, scourged, and burnt to death. A native of Malda Malda was burnt by a slow fire for saying that the Mass was a plain denial of the death and passion of Christ. Francis Brebard, secretary to Cardinal de Pelay, for speaking in favor of the Reformed, had his tongue cut out and was then burnt A.D. 1545. James Cobart, a schoolmaster in the city of St. Michael, was burnt eighteen fifteen forty five, for saying the Mass was useless and absurd. And about the same time, 14 men were burnt at Malda, their wives being compelled to stand by and behold the execution. A.D. 1546, Peter Chapeau brought a number of Bibles in the French tongue to France and publicly sold them there, for which he was brought to trial, sentenced, and executed a few days afterward. Now, folks, that is for selling Bibles. In the year 1554, two men of the Reformed religion with the son and daughter of one of them were apprehended and committed to the castle of Neverne. On examination, they confessed their faith and were ordered to execution. Being smeared with grease, brimstone, and gunpowder, they cried, Salt on, salt on, this sinful and rotten flesh. Their tongues were then cut out, and they were afterward committed to the flames, which soon consumed them by means of the combustible matter with which they were besmeared. Now, so far, what I've been reading to you sounds like isolated incidents. I mean, here, there, a town here, there, a few burnt, a few killed in various and sundry ways. But how many have ever heard of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre? How many have ever heard of that? Well, this occurred in 1572, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but their believers were massacred. And this is what the Roman Catholic Church did in Paris to a Protestant leader, The savage savage papist, raging against him, cut off his arms and private members, and after dragging him three days through the streets, hung him by the heels without the city. They continued the slaughter for many days. In the 31st, they slew of all ranks and conditions to the number of 10,000. 
The bodies were thrown into the rivers, and blood ran through the streets with a strong current, and the river appeared presently like a stream of blood. So furious was their hellish rage that they slew all papists whom they suspected to be not very staunch in their diabolical religion. From Paris, the destruction spread to all quarters of the realm. At Orléans, a thousand were slain of men, women, and children, and six thousand at Rouen. At Meldith, two hundred were put into prison and later brought out by units and cruelly murdered. At Lyon, eight hundred were massacred. Here, children hanging about their parents and parents affectionately embracing their children were pleasant food for the swords and bloodthirsty minds of those who call themselves the Catholic Church. Here, three hundred were slain in the bishop's house. And the impious monks would suffer none to be buried. This horrid butchery was not confined merely to the city of Paris. The like orders were issued from court to the governors of all the provinces in France, so that in a week's time, about 100,000 Protestants were cut to pieces in different parts of the kingdom. Now, Fox goes on to write here that in one city, the Catholics surrounded it and barricaded it, and starved the people to death. 18,000 out of 22,000 people in one city were starved to death, and they were forced to eat their own dung. They were forced to eat human flesh and entrails. Then there's another account that he tells about a pregnant woman who was in bed, and the papists came, the Roman Catholics came, and she was being attended at that time, expecting to be delivered of her child, And when they caught her in the bed and about to be delivered, they took a knife and they stabbed it into her all the way to the hilt. And there she got up and she ran out and she went to the barn and they caught her there and they stabbed her again. And this time the baby was cut out of her belly. And they took the baby and they stabbed it and they tossed the baby into the river. Protestants were expelled from all offices, trades, privileges, and employs thereby depriving them of the means of getting their bread. And they proceeded to such excess in this brutality that they would not suffer even the midwives to officiate, but compelled their women to submit themselves to that crisis of nature to their enemies, the brutal Catholics. Their children were taken from them to be educated by the Catholics and at seven years of age made to embrace popery. At Bar, great cruelty was used even to young children, whom they cut open, pulled out their entrails, which, through which very rage they gnawed with their teeth. They hanged both men and women by their hair or feet and smoked them with hay until they were nearly dead. And if they still refused to sign a recantation, they hung them up again and repeated their barbarities until wearied out with torments without death, they forced many to yield to them." Others, they plucked off all the hair of their heads and beards with pinchers. Others, they threw on great fires and pulled them out again, repeating it until they extorted a promise to recant. Some, they stripped naked, and after offering them the most infamous insults, they stuck them with pins from head to foot and lanced them with pen knives. And sometimes, with red-hot pinchers, they dragged them by the nose until they promised to turn. Sometimes they tied fathers and husbands while they ravished their wives and daughters before their eyes. Multitudes they imprisoned in the most noisome dungeons where they practiced all sorts of their torments in secret. The bishops and the intendants marched at the head of the dragoons with a troop of missionaries, monks, and other ecclesiastics to animate the soldiers to execution so agreeable to their holy church and so glorious to their demon god and their tyrant king. Now, that goes on and on and on. And unless you think 
that's for just a brief time. And what happened here was just a few misguided individuals at that particular time. I want to show you, first of all, the orders came directly from the Pope. And I want to refer you to Pope Innocent III, who began the Inquisition. And we have a picture tonight, if uh, we can see that, of his eminence, uh, Pope Innocent III of the Holy Church of Rome. He was Pope in the 13th century. Now, the interesting thing about that fact, Pope in the 13th century, that was 300 years before what I just read. And so the Inquisition was started 300 years before what John Fox wrote there in the 16th century. Now, in the beginning of chapter 5, this Fox writes this. He says, When the Reformed religion began to diffuse the gospel light throughout Europe, Pope Innocent III entertained great fear for the Romish church. He accordingly instituted a number of inquisitors, or persons who were made to inquire after, apprehend, and punish heretics, as the Reformed were called by the papists. At the head of these inquisitors was one Dominic, who had been canonized by the Pope, in order to render his authority the more respectable. Dominic and the other inquisitors spread themselves into various Roman Catholic countries and treated the Protestants with utmost severity. In process of time, the Pope, not finding these Roman inquisitors so useful as he had imagined, resolved upon the establishment of fixed and regular courts of inquisition. After the order for these regular courts, the first office of Inquisition was established in the city of Toulouse, and Dominic became the first regular inquisitor as he had before been the first roving inquisitor. Now here what we have is the papal command for regular courts to be spread all throughout Europe, and they would find anyone who disagreed with Roman Catholicism, and they would be brutally tortured. I'm going to read to you one more account because I don't have time to read the whole book, and it really ought to be read by anybody who would consider becoming a Roman Catholic and anybody who would ever even consider staying in the Roman Catholic religion. Now, lest you think that there wasn't some compassion in all of this, there were a couple of rules that they kept. The first rule was that they had to say the Mass before they tortured people. And then um, they allowed this inquisition or this torture to take place only three times. So that's very compassionate, I think. God bless them. But here we read on a little bit. The inquisitors allow the torture to be used only three times, but during those times it is so severely inflicted that the prisoner either dies under it or continues always after a cripple and suffers the severest pains upon every change of weather. We shall give an ample description of the severe torments occasioned by the torture from the account of one who suffered it three respective times but happily survived the cruelties he underwent. At the first time of torturing... Six executioners entered, stripped him naked to his drawers, and laid him upon his back on a kind of stand, elevated a few feet from the floor. The operation commenced by putting an iron collar around his neck and a ring to each foot, which fastened him to the stand. His limbs being thus stretched out, they wound two ropes around each thigh, which ropes, being passed under the scaffold through holes made for that purpose, were all drawn tight at the same instant of time by four of the men on a given signal. It is easy to conceive that the pains which immediately succeeded were intolerable. The ropes, which were of small size, cut through the prisoner's flesh to the bone, making the blood to gush out at eight different places, thus bound at a time. As the prisoner persisted in not making any confession of what the inquisitors required, the ropes were drawn in this manner four times successively. 
The manner of inflicting the second torture was as follows. They forced his arms backward so that the palms of his hands were turned outward behind him when by means of a rope that fastened them together at the wrist and which was turned by an engine, they drew them by degrees nearer each other in such a manner that the back of each hand touched and stood exactly parallel to each other. Now, do you get the picture of what's happening here? You have somebody with their arms stretched out like this, their palms outward and inward, I'm sorry, and they bring their arms back and keep bringing them back from this position until their palms touch behind them. Try that sometime. In consequence of this violent contortion, both his shoulders became dislocated and a considerable quantity of blood issued from his mouth. This torture was repeated thrice, after which he was taken to the dungeon and the surgeon set the dislocated bones. Two months after the second torture, the prisoner being a little recovered, was again ordered to the torture room and there for the last time made to undergo another kind of punishment, which was inflicted twice without any intermission. The executioners fastened a thick iron chain round his body, crossing at the breast, terminated at the wrist. They then placed him with his back against a thick board, at each extremity whereof was a pulley, through which there ran a rope that caught the end of the chain at his wrist. The executioner then, stretching the end of the rope by means of a roller placed at a distance behind him, pressed or bruised his stomach in proportion as the ends of the chains were drawn tighter. They tortured him in this manner to such a degree that his wrist as well as his shoulders were quite dislocated. They were, however, soon set by the surgeons, but the barbarians, not yet satisfied with this species of cruelty, made him immediately undergo the like torture a second time, which he sustained, though if possible attended with keener pains, with equal constancy and resolution. After this, he was again remanded to the dungeon, attended by the surgeon to dress his bruises and adjust the part dislocated, and here he continued until he was discharged, crippled, and diseased for life. Now there you have the Roman Catholic Church, and as I said, this went on for 600 years up until the 19th century. That's how near that this is to the time that we live today. Now, interestingly, the Inquisition has now been renamed. It still exists. And the name of it is the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, don't think that they, at any moment, when they have the opportunity, they won't charge up this machine again. I mean, when the opportunity presents itself, they'll do it again because they haven't changed. It's the same old religious system. Now, I want to show you something here next, the next picture that we have. This is a, a picture of one of the machines that they used. And I want to quote now from the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. And this is written by Roman Catholics to explain themselves. And what I'm going to read to you comes under the title of Inquisition. Now, this, this again, this is an encyclopedia, not written by me, not written by Protestants. The Roman Catholics wrote them themselves to explain what this is all about. And this encyclopedia was actually dedicated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So under the heading of Inquisition, this is what they write. By this term is usually meant a special ecclesiastical institution for combating or suppressing heresy. Its characteristic mark seems to be the bestowal on special judges of judicial powers in matters of faith. In other words, they, they are bestowed upon by the Pope or whomever with these special powers that they can judge the faith. And this by supreme ecclesiastical authority, not temporal or for individual cases, but as a universal and permanent office. This is their own writing. 
moderns experience difficulty in understanding the institution because they have, to no small extent, lost sight of two facts. So now they're going to explain to us why we don't really understand what took place in the Inquisition and what what it was all about and why it's so righteous. On the one hand, they have ceased, talking about us who look into this matter, on one hand, they have ceased to grasp religious belief as something objective, as the gift of God, and therefore outside the realm of free private judgment. On the other, they no longer see in the church a society perfect and sovereign based substantially on a pure and authentic revelation whose first most important duty must naturally be to retain unsullied the original deposit of faith. Before the religious revolution of the 16th century, these views were still common to all Christians that orthodoxy should be maintained at any cost seemed self-evident. However, while the positive suppression of heresy by ecclesiastical and civil authority in Christian society is as old as the church, they said it, not me, it's as old as the church, the Inquisition, their church, the Inquisition as a distinct ecclesiastical tribunal is of much later origin. Historically, it is a phase in the growth of ecclesiastical legislation whose distinctive traits can be fully understood only by a careful study of the conditions under which it grew up. Now what follows that is a long list of excuses, of caviling, of all different kinds of claims that the only time they ever tortured people was when it was demanded by civil authorities, but they failed to mention that they were in control of civil authorities. Now here, here is an, expert, an excerpt concerning the time period that we've just read concerning the office of the inquisitor. Now, you have the picture in front of you, and I want you to listen to as, read, and I, as I read. I want you to listen to the sympathy for the torturer, not the tortured. It was a heavy burden of responsibility, almost too heavy for a common mortal, which fell upon the shoulders of an inquisitor who was obliged, at least indirectly, to decide between life and death. The church was bound to insist that he should possess in a preeminent degree the qualities of a good judge, that he should be animated with a glowing zeal for the faith, the salvation of souls, and the extirpation of heresy, that amid all difficulties and dangers he should never yield to anger or passion, that he should meet hostility fearlessly but should not count on it, that he should yield to no inducement or threat and yet not be heartless, that when circumstance had permitted, he should observe mercy in allotting penalties, that he should listen to the counsel of others and not trust too much to his own opinion or to appearance, since often the probable is untrue and the truth improbable. Of such an inquisitor was Gregory the Ninth, doubtlessly thinking when he urged Conrad of Marburg not to punish the wicked so as to hurt the innocent. History shows us how far the inquisitors answered to this ideal. Far from being inhuman, they were as a rule men of spotless character and sometimes of truly admirable sanctity, and not a few of them have been canonized by the church. Folks, this is written in our time, not hundreds of years ago. This is our time. There is absolutely no reason to look on the medieval ecclesiastical judge as intellectually and morally inferior to the modern judge. No one would deny that the judges of today, despite occasional harsh decisions and the errors of a few, pursue a highly honorable profession. Similarly, the medieval inquisitors should be judged as a whole, and listen to this statement, 
Moreover, history does not justify the hypotheses that the medieval heretics were prodigies of virtue deserving our sympathy in advance. Does that sound like that they would do this again? There you have it. I mean, do you think the Roman Catholic Church tells the truth about itself? Do you think that they admit to all their atrocities? No, they excuse it. And they justify it, exactly like we've just read. They reclassify it. And that's because their nefarious past, folks, is their nefarious present. So it's Babylon, the same old system, the same ones that burned Hebrew children in the fire, the same ones that killed the apostles, the same ones that burned Polycarp at the stake, the same ones that cut the entrails out of children, the same ones that pulled the limbs of people being tortured out of joint three times if they had not been so righteously blessed to have killed them the first two times. These are the same people waiting a further opportunity. It's still in the books. They still have the Inquisition under a different name. It is a permanent, not a temporary office. They say so themselves. You see why John is so astonished at what he sees? He has a look into the future. Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. And he sees it now under the guise of Christianity. That's the religion of the Antichrist. It lusts after power. And it still is today. And all that they're waiting for is their new king to appear on the scene. Folks, you need to be aware, ecclesiastical Babylon is still rising. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and we don't offer the information that we have as a way to cut other people down, to hate them or any such thing. But we want people to know the truth of the history of this insidious religion that's called Roman Catholicism today. That all the evil that was in the past, that came out of the Babylonian system, that went through these hundreds of years of church history, this apostate church has always been evil at the heart and it has not changed. Lord, I pray that you would help people to be aware of that. It shows up in all of their coverings up or their evil deeds that they do, the passing off of so many things that are atrocities today. And we just pray, Lord, that you would spare us from such people. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is coming again to put an end to all of this forever. So we thank you, Lord, for your people listening to this tonight. And may we be energized to tell other people what they must avoid. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.